For the record, I've never read the book. <laughs> Just want to get that out right up quick. Um, God, where do I begin? I've made a vow, mostly to myself, if I'm being honest, but I've also said it to you guys, that I would always ensure being honest with you when it came to this show. And that means sometimes I say things that are going to be unpopular. I didn't really like this film all that much. I mean, it's not like it was actively bad. In fact, I was talking to a friend of mine while I was watching it with my notes here, and I, I got across the idea it, it wasn't bad. In fact, if anything, this is probably the definition of coffee for me, because this is an amazingly executed film. I'm actually legitimately surprised at the overall quality on display, uh, especially given you know two of the directors involved. But <laughs> nevertheless, I was, I was like, wow, this is very well written. Well, no, rewind. It's very well directed. It's very well presented. The editing is, is pretty much spot on throughout the whole thing. And the acting is, of course, phenomenal. I mean, the cast list, holy crap. I mean, I don't even have to go further than Hugo Weaving, Keith David, Susan Sarandon, and uh, and uh, Tom Hanks, of course. But there's even more you know, excellent actors in this film. And it shows... What I also find is interesting is that this film never got, almost didn't get made multiple times. Uh, I didn't find a lot of behind-the-scenes information on this one, but I did find a few specific interviews, and according to quite a few different people... <sighs> rewind a second. For those of you not aware, agents actually have a decent amount of, for lack of a better way to put it, power when it comes to the creation of movies. And that makes a degree of sense, because that's what an actor does. They hire an agent, and that agent deals with things for them. I mean, technically, the actor does have the final say. But there's a reason that agents are usually the ones who actually decide who gets what roles when it comes to Hollywood. The exceptions are exactly that, exceptions. So most of these people's agents said, yeah, this film is, is on life support. It doesn't really have the budget. Don't take the role. And then Tom Hanks, who I'll talk about another concept regarding him in a second here, said, I get the impression he really wanted to do this film, and I have a theory why. And so Tom Hanks said, no, I'm doing it. Even though Tom Hanks' own agent was telling him not to do it. Again, he does technically have the final say, so he just said, no, I'm doing this film. And because Tom Hanks signed on, everyone else signed on. And just because of bloody sheer momentum, they successfully got the film made. Now, I mentioned, uh, uh, there's two topics I want to talk about really quick, and both of them are related to Tom Hanks. Let me just go ahead and say before I start that I do find him to be an amazing actor. Um, he's what I like to think of as a range actor. Um, some some people are very good at like a specific type of acting or a specific type of character or presentation. And then some people can act basically anything. Uh, ben Kingsley is another excellent example of someone who is a range actor, who can just do a huge variety of different types of roles right next to each other, no less. So Hanks, well, he does that, and he really actually does an excellent job of that. It's one of the reasons I've always been a fan of his uh, general acting approach and style. But having said that, Hanks also has tremendous political clout when it comes to Hollywood. And I'm not saying that as a dig or anything, it's just a statement of fact. Uh, this is something that I've talked about several times. The more intangible influence that exists within Hollywood is something that needs to be acknowledged and, and considered when it comes to making things. There's a reason why, once upon a time, for example, if George Clooney wanted something to happen, it would probably get made. Or if Steven Spielberg was pushing for something, it would happen, regardless of executives, regardless of finances, and regardless of other things, because they just had that much push. And I'm pretty sure that's the reason why everyone was on board with this. Because Tom Hanks absolutely has that kind of push in Hollywood, even to this day. The man has, has tremendous star power. 
And, let's be honest, for good reason. He's also, by all accounts, a really nice, you know, gets along with people guy in real life, so I imagine a lot of people like working with him, which probably helps the whole situation, like I mentioned. Now, <clears throat> having discussed that, and that's, that's my, again, my theory is why everyone was so willing to go along with this, let me give my theory as why I think Tom Hanks wanted to be in this movie. Because I would want to be in this movie. I know what you're saying. You're putting yourself on Tom Hanks' level? No. But what I mean by that is this is a wonderful creative challenge movie to act in. We're going to cover six, six, five? Mm. Several different timelines or different time periods. And we're going to have the same basic cast for each period with, with a couple of exceptions. And in, in, if you'll notice, several people like Tom Hanks play someone in every single period. Now that to me just sounds like a wonderful challenge to be able to play that many different roles in a single work and trying to vary each one and alter your perception, alter your presentation. That sounds awesome. That's the kind of thing I would love to act in. And Hanks himself has always kind of struck me as the person who's really in it for the acting, you know, who really does enjoy, for lack of a better way to call it, the craft. And I do think he looked at this project and was like, oh man, dude, that's awesome, you know. I'm actually pretty sure that's also why Hugo Weaving was sufficiently interested in order to push for this particular uh, project as well. But anyways, anyways, that's all I got about the behind-the-scenes stuff. I, I kind of meandered on that one because if I'm being 100% honest, I don't have much to say about the film itself. Talking about individual characters in a work like this is almost meaningless since that's almost the opposite of the, te of the theme. And I keep saying almost on purpose. But what I do want to talk about... Oh... Um, okay, so one of the, the significant recurring themes throughout the work is the ideas of both intellectual and physical supremacy. And we see both of these recurring throughout the course of the work. And it's a nice way to kind of showcase, well, how messed up life is, but also more to the point, the, the significant variance in terms of severity between both of those tiers. Now... I'm someone who, for a long time, and I indeed I do adhere to this to this very day, insists that intellectual abuse or intellectual, you know, uh, aggravation or intellectual problem is just as bad as physical, and a lot of people don't seem to think that. How many times have you, for example, been so mentally out of it, for one reason or another, that you've basically not really been able to go to work? But you can't call into work and say, I'm sorry, my brain isn't working right today. You have to pretend you're sick, because people only presume a physical sickness is a sufficient reason to call into work, right? And instead you just go to work and you do a terrible job, because you can't get out of work on that day. Just naming one example of what I'm talking about when it comes to the severity difference between physical and intellectual. However, this film successfully not only shows the difference between those two tiers, but also shows how the two tiers are intricately connected. Because in almost every single example of intellectual supremacy being utilized, that then led to physical supremacy being utilized. Now, I keep using the word supremacy. Again, I don't remember any of the names. You guys know how bad I am with names. Please don't ask me to think of names about it. The elder gentleman who was the songwriter being played by the amazing Jim, Jim Broadbent. By the way, can I just say really quick, as an aside, the idea to make most of the film narrated by him was a very smart move. The man has a wonderful narration voice, and it manages to sound simultaneously profound and human, so props on that choice. Anyways, so he's playing the elderly musician, and he's talking to the younger gentleman who is the musical brilliance and, and someone who has been... And he basically blackmails him and says, Listen... I'm going to take credit for everything you do. 
and if you try to leave, well, I'm going to slander you. And that will destroy your reputation, and that will be the end of your career. Okay? And any questions? No. Intellectual supremacy. Trying to force a more intangible status quo onto him in order to exert control and power over him. Make sense? This leads to a physical altercation. And by all accounts, based on the way it's presented, I don't think he shot him on purpose. I think that was pure on just a, a oh, God, uh, and, and of course the man lived through it, so whatever. But no, the physical supremacy in, in question would be the man being basically res, uh, reduced to squalor, having to literally bribe Tom Hanks with his with his coat in order to be able to continue to exist and pay the rent. And then, of course, committing suicide. Seconds before his lover shows up, of course, because, I mean, why wouldn't you have something as horribly tragic as possible? <sighs> yeah, this film got to me a little bit, by the way. I'm just going to go and admit that. I mean, I get that the film was intended to be an overall positive message. Uh, one of the final quotes really gets it across so well. What is an ocean but, but a, a massive amount of drops, right? That makes sense. But it's hard to see it that way when you are one of the drops. Anyways, so... That's an, that's an excellent example of what I'm talking about. Another example, uh, of course, the threat that the reporter had over the, the power company and the, the, the flaw that was in the atomic reactor they were working on, that whole thing was predominantly intellectual. Intellectual threats, intellectual supremacy being uh, utilized on both sides, initially on behalf of the company to try and bring them to heel, and then, of course, from them trying to push back and try to make something happen here, which then led to physical supremacy by actually sending Hugo Weaving, who's always the bad guy, of course, in order to go and shoot them in the face, uh, sometimes literally. All of this, all of this is an excellent dis uh, display and example of how bad things can get in multiple different levels, you know, in multiple tiers. Uh, the, the obvious slave, it's, uh, I don't even want to go into that, but then, of course, uh, the intellectual uh, stagnancy, being locked in a home, I will admit, by the way, the one and only story arc in this film that I really did legitimately enjoy was everything to do with the nursing home. I know what you're thinking. Huh? But hear me out. First of all, nursing homes are kind of a, uh, a thing I care about more than other things because I've been to quite a few of them in my life. My mother, as I think I've mentioned several times, has worked as a pharmacist, and a lot of my family on that side has also been in the medical profession, and as a consequence, I've been through quite a few different uh, retirement centers in my life, in multiple different states, too. This isn't just a localized problem. And they're all, uh, I shouldn't say all, most of them are bad. Most of them are, in fact, awful. And I have learned many horrible things about human nature and about the nature of systems while going through there and how they break and beat down people, not with physical supremacy, but with intellectual supremacy. You see why I keep using this word, by the way? Because that's what it's all about. Even in this very film, they say there's a natural order to things. That's why I keep using that word, because it's not about any, it's not about hurting, it's not about tearing, it's not about taking, it's all about I'm better than you. And that's what all of the people trying to sh utilize this are doing in one manner or another, whether physical or intellectual. So, the nursing home sequence, which again was brilliant. <laughs> I love when they go to the bar. Scott, come on, are you with me or not? Anyways, um, <laughs> I actually laughed. He is my property. Yeah. Um, 
Going through that section, excuse me, I was making a point there. Uh, the entirety of that section is mostly a form of intellectual supremacy. Um, because he had signed away his rights, because he had been signed into this, this this retirement center, and they now have legal jurisdiction over him, because they now are going to try and break him down, emotionally, mentally, right? You could argue spiritually, if you believe in such a thing. And of course, again, carrying forward the theme, those have physical consequences as well, which is starts right off the bat, bat with the uh, the nurse, played by Hugo Weaving, uh, you know, literally smacking him, or the altercations, or the possibility of, of uh, physical abuse, or being locked up, or being drugged. You know, there's all sorts of physical consequences for the intellectual problems going on there. There's one thing I really liked about the future section. Not the future future. The future. Uh, New Seoul, or Seoul, or Seoul. I can never pronounce that word correctly, and I always feel stupid for it. Uh, first of all, the implication that everything's just going to hell quickly. But no, no, no. What I loved most about that is the shot of the McDonald's. I actually forget what they call it in the film. It was it was a McDonald's. It was supposed to make McDonald's, and there were obvious copyright and li licensing issues, and the film was already having enough trouble getting made, so they just kind of control replaced, find replaced, you know, control R and everything on there. Um, but I love how that section, is, you see that facility when there's no, when, when it's not on. And it's just coarse, dirty, stained walls. Concrete, for the most part. And it just looks awful. Now what's interesting about that is, of course, they then paint it with this kind of thing, which makes it look like the bright, happy you know, McDonald's. And then they get rid of it again, and it goes back to being awful, which is, of course, a very on-the-nose metaphor. Lots of bluntness in the future stuff, so I don't have much to talk about there. But I did like that idea of the fact that it got to the point, because if you notice, even when they go to the guy's apartment, his apartment still is bleak and cement and awfulness, but then he uses the paint light gun thing in order to show what he actually wants it to look like. I, I, that's an interesting concept, is what I'm trying to say. And, of course, it's normal. That's just kind of how things work there. Anywho, <laughs> moving on. Looking at my notes here, uh, there's a lot of <sighs> unanimity versus subspeak. Yeah, I'm not even going to get into that. Um, we, we, there's a lot of showcasing of <sighs> distancing people from other people. How many times do we see something instead in the film? In fact, Hugo Weaving as the devil in the future future pretty much literally says she's not your tribe, she's not even your skin. Like, why do you care about her? And, and it's another one of the recurring trends throughout the film is trying to distance people from other people because of sexual preference, because of uh, gender, because of the color of their skin, because of the fact that they may or not, may not be of the same tribe, or because they're literally an artificial life form. All of these are things that are presented in the film. Uh, I jotted down a couple of obvious examples. The slaves being forced to watch the whipping. Um, the, the guy who flings the other guy off the roof and how that just leads to a financially booning situation. The, uh, I'll get to that one in a second because I want to talk about that one. The, um, the entire way they deal with the fabricants, which is, of course, extremely uh, messed up, just to put that as bluntly as possible. After all, fabricants are a plentiful source of protein. I wish I didn't see that, by the way. This film was kind of gross. I'm just going to go ahead and admit that. I get that that's part of the point. I do get that. That doesn't mean I have to like it. 
Just because you're doing something deliberately does not make it acceptable, at least not for the individual. But I digress. No, the uh, the thing I want to talk about there was the... It goes back to the nursing home. In order to escape, they they basically get a hold of a phone and go ahead and call out. And it's like, okay, hey, you know, uh, your mother, she's super sick, and we're not sure she's going to make it through the night. Please, can you come in and, and see her? Now, what's the response? I'm going to try and quote this word for word here. Oh, this really isn't a good time for us. Do we really have to come in? Now, that might, may or may not bother you. The next thing they do in order to make sure they hook them and make sure they come in is they go ahead and say, oh, yeah, she said there's something wrong with her will and it's really bothering her. And that not only makes the guy's eyes just go, but as a wife gets up immediately, like, oh, my God, we've got to get in the will immediately. And they get in the car and they write right out there. And that is so goddamn horrible. It's also intellectual supremacy, as I mentioned earlier. But it kind of shows, once again, regarding, disregarding the supremacy theme, this is the distance theme. How people distance themselves from other people. This gentleman was thinking of his mother, or her mother as the case may be, as someone who is someone who even on her deathbed, presumed of course, he doesn't know it's a lie, she, he had no interest in bothering to get up in the middle of the night to see her. The only reason he cared is because there was money involved. I'm not even going to get into the obvious stuff with the power company who actually wants a nuclear power plant to fail as catastrophically as possible in order to kill as many people as possible because, well, that way they'll be able to keep pushing for the oil, which is where they'll actually make their money. Again, it's about distancing. I've talked about this, the psychology of this so much. The more you mentally distance yourself from other people as thinking of them as actual individuals, real people, the easier it is to do horrible things to them. This is one of the reasons why sociopathy is such a problem. Because a sociopath doesn't really tend to think of that as a person, and thus doesn't cognate why it matters. Where most people, who do not have mental illness problems, will look at someone and see a person. I've talked about this so much on my show. It's why it's so much easier to press a button than it is to strangle someone with your bare hands. And so all of that side of that is mostly them distancing them and distancing and distancing. And every time it's shoved into their face, they fight back against that. They don't want to think about that. They don't want it to be right up in their face. They don't want it to be personal. I don't want to think of these people as people. There's an actual order to things. And I suppose that leads to the third and final theme of the film, and that would be, of course, Drops in the Ocean. The most obvious theme and the one that I have the least to talk about, but it is really the concluding theme of the film, unless I felt the best way to talk about it is that. Because the idea here is either literal reincarnation or the logic of patterns. I'll leave it up to you to decide which you prefer. I, I'm not even going to tell you my own thoughts on that matter. But both are basically applied in the same way. Either these are literally people reincarnating across history. I mean, they mention several times, I feel like I've met you before. Or, as I mentioned earlier, this is just the patterns of life being presented. Uh, basically, the macroscopic viewpoint of the microscopic perspective. And I know that sounds like a weird sentence, but it's something that's been a recurring theme lately. It's what's kind of in my head in general, so please forgive me. It was a long film, too. Good Lord. Took the most of the data, actually, set up for this one. <sighs> or watched through this film. Excuse me. One of the uh, the points is that every now and again, in, in spite of the, the, the system being wrong and the, the large macroscopic scale of things being horrible and awful and terrible, there's usually, in every time frame, there are individuals and those specific 
individuals are people who are capable of acts of kindness, acts of aid, acts of attempting to try and make things better on the macroscopic scale. In other words, tossing out another drop into the giant pit, hoping that eventually there will be enough drops there in order to make an ocean. Now, even I actually chose that analogy very specifically because if you're thinking about it, if you just toss out a drop and then no other drops fall into that pit, well, it's just going to evaporate or sink into the sand and nothing will happen. In other words, one drop by itself is both relevant and irrelevant, dependent upon other drops. And that's the point of the theme right there. That you have to look at it from both perspectives, hence why my confusing statement earlier. A drop by itself is insignificant, but that's the point. Because a drop by itself, it is when the drops combine that things happen. And sometimes those drops happen over significant portions of, of time and space. That individual lives are destroyed or ruined or killed to, to establish both physical and intellectual supremacy in order to maintain either a system or literal standing. You know, the difference between I want to make sure that I have a nice house versus I want to make sure I eat tomorrow is technically the same type of supremacy, just expressed at a different level. But in either case, we see that recurrent throughout the film, at least one other drop notices the first drop. And that's a very common theme in real life. One of the really interesting things, and I do not want to get into controversial topics, but this is historically true, is that the only way that things actually do change on a large scale or a large way for things to actually get better from a systemic perspective is when lots of drops get involved. That's the point. One drop starts it. One drop either doesn't care enough or is pushed far enough or is brave enough or unafraid enough in order to do. And they suffer for that. Universally true. They suffer for that. And then another drop goes in because they were inspired by it. And then another, and then another, and then things change. And that's life. A very interesting film, to say the least. I hope you've enjoyed my thoughts on it. I'll see you next time.